kneel before me, lay your sword at my feet, pledge me your service, and you'll rise again as John Stark, Lord of Winterfell. I wonder, who could all these fine people be? A man wonders. I suppose we should allow all of you inside. Welcome. There's no one here by the name that you're looking for. A podcast has no name. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, it does, and the name is Game of Owns. We're glad to welcome you all to the show this week. We've just come off the viewing of the second episode of season five, and it's winged exit and the world is in chaos i think that it's all safe to say that none of us were expecting the way that it finished i was not expecting any of that of this entire episode it felt all new to me i don't think there's a single thread that of like characters where i was like oh they'll be doing this like even the um brienne and pod stuff i expected them to be like on their way but no that was some interesting very interesting stuff. this whole episode was extremely exciting and took the show in directions that I had no clue it was going. So super, well, super happy about that. I, I think, Eric, things might be a bit new to you. Did you say Eric? <laughs> yes. <laughs> my, 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 my Britishness is, is rubbing off on you. Exactly. I was going to say, you are not listening or, or listening. <laughs> you are not watching this week's episode <laughs> in, a, in your normal location. That's right. I'm actually broadcasting this podcast in the same area where I watched it. And that is a room above a pub. In south, in southeast uh, sector seventeen of London, and and sector is my word for it. It's actually just like a district or a zone or something. But are you there visiting yes. Corman Strike's office for a case? Corman Strike's office is. Did you know they happen to be David Heyman's office back when he was uh, uh, in the in the when he was when they, he was auditioning people for, for the film on Denmark Street back in the day. You know what? I'm going to go there uh, tomorrow. That's what I'm going to do with my day tomorrow. And I'm going to have Doom Bar. I haven't had Doom Bar yet. Are you going to have lunch with him? Uh, no. He Corbin Strike, <laughs> David Heyman. If you could have lunch with your favorite fictional characters, um, no, no, no. But uh, but I'm actually in London. Uh, I came here for a Harry Potter uh, convention that MuggleNet threw. It was a one day expo called Expo Patronum, and that was a really highly successful event. Um, we saw Nat Natalia Tena um, was there, and so was Warwick Davis, uh, Alfie Allen, and a number, or not Alfie, oh, shit, not Alfie Allen. <laughs> if, guys, if Alfie Allen was there, I would yeah. probably still be hanging out with him. Right. I would not be on this podcast, and you all would understand, because as listeners who know me know that, anyway, Alfie, Enoch. He's got there. Theon on the brain. Yeah, Theon on my mind. But, uh, no, no, guys, it was a wonderful experience, but watching this episode tonight on Sunday has been another, like, highlight Absolutely, one hundred percent. I'm. I was blown away. This episode, like I liked last week's episode, but this episode is like so much crazier. Well, I mean, makes sense. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they try I'm, and do that as the episodes go I mean, on. Well, yeah, you slowly but like, build up your level of excitement. Cut out the fact that Drogon returns to Danny. Cut out the fact that Danny executes one of her own. And that John is elected nine hundred ninety eighth commander to the to the Night's no Watch, kidding. and you've still got no a kidding. badass 
badass chase sequence with Brienne on horseback, really pulling her weight for the first time ever. She does not have a, tr- a good track record, and that gets thrown in her face by Sansa of all people. Sansa, I'm so sorry, but that, that chase, man, that chase. And mm. so this episode had plenty of, st- like, tons of stuff. I cannot wait to get into it with y'all. Eric just summed it all up, so we're done. Yeah. Thanks yeah. for listening. We'll be back Bye, everybody. with our uh, second episode. <laughs> don't, don't let the door hit you. got the this shot that you've been wishing for for the longest time, which is Arya arriving in Bravos with the mm. great Titan. You did foretell. Both you in did front foretell of her. this this mm-hmm. this thing. You're like, man, I wish that was the first time we saw Bravos. It doesn't matter that it, was the first, it wasn't the first time we saw Bravos. That was a badass shot, and I'm glad that it happened. Yes. So we do get introduced or reintroduced, I should say, to Bravos uh, with a bit of uh, history uh, to the Titan, because of course, in last season when Stannis and Davos head there, there isn't a nice little ferryman who is uh, helping uh, both of them on their way and giving them a little bit of backstory into the city and it and its history. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would actually say we got to see the Titan quite a few times because if you noticed, he's in the background mm-hmm. as Arya and uh, the Bravosi men are approaching the uh, House of Black and White. I did yeah. notice that. So now I know where the House of Black and White is in relation to the Titan of Bravos and the entrance of the city. It actually made me think of when we were looking at those maps, when we were recording stuff for Patreon months back and how the yeah. House of Black and White is strategically placed. I don't think that they geographically captured it perfectly, but I think that you know the idea of it being a place that they needed a row to that was set apart from kind of the metropolistic <laughs> area of Bravos was it was cool that they they did it that way. And uh, I liked how some of the shots outside of the house in black and white were able to have the Titan sort of foreboding in the background. Yeah. The captain set it up. He said whenever Bravo stood in danger, the Titan would step with fire in his eyes. He would wade into the sea and smash his enemies. Do you guys think that's true? Well, whenever <laughs> we reach some place, you know. He's I- a statue, Eric. Didn't you hear what Arya said? <laughs> well, you've seen, look, you've seen Deathly Hallows Part 2, okay? A little bit of transfiguration and the statues come come coming at you. When, when White Walkers happen, when a baby can be transformed into a thing, when fireballs are thrown from hands, I feel like I'm anything's possible. So whenever the story reaches its fateful conclusion or wherever we're nearing whatever zenith that we actually end up nearing as the books and the shows progress how excellent would it be if the titan stepped with fire in his eyes and joined the fray as soon as the captain it would be it's just like hey that is gonna happen that's like that okay now that you've said that that's gonna happen it's just like uh, old nan's stories right it's like all of them have come true so that's totally I'm, i'm committed now to seeing that before the series is over yeah i think that it uh was done extremely well when as soon as Arya mentioned that it was a statue, there was that really loud mm. noise. <laughs> she reaches for and her he, sword, like it's very, old man very, is very like, timely, of course, that yeah. it would happen as soon as she made that comment. So you have to wonder, maybe there is, given the fact that we are in Bravos and we are in it's Essos. It's just a horn, right? Or did the statue actually like <laughs> bellow at her? Hey, it's open to interpretation. All You're right. right, though. We are in Essos. We, you know, like I said, everything's on the table. I'm not here to discount theories or wild ideas because at the end of the day, it just comes down to whatever is cool in the story, whatever, you know, drives the plot forward and makes a lot of sense. How amazing would it be to see the Drogon that we saw tonight larger, more deadly, and with his brothers circling a Titan in some sort of final battle? 
That would be insane. It would be pretty epic. That would, I mean, or I the Titan fighting the dragon. So cool. I mean, come on. Exactly. That's what I'm <laughs> Can saying. Can Bran warg into the Titan? <laughs> oh, jeez. I don't know if it works that way, but we'll see. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We're getting way <laughs> now, too that far That would be pretty awesome. <laughs> he, he, Unless the Titan flies, I don't think that'd be well. There was something like uh, uh, snows can become Starks, but Starks can't become stones. So there's that. we <laughs> canoed through Bravos. We got a nice little shot from inside of the the sort of the drain gutter area, and just in general establishing the breadth, the culture, and the depth of the place that we're in. So I thought that that was that was That's, done pretty well. Definitely my new favorite shot of the series, I think, so far. Is that storm gutter that they're in, like you just mentioned? Like, they how do they think to, to do that? Because it's such a different type of shot. You just throw a camera in on, a, like, a floaty or, like, a little boat, nerd, or maybe you fix it. Or you again. send a cameraman. You send a cameraman. <laughs> into in, Yeah. In that it does well to, I mean, with relative ease, you know, breaking down the music and putting in some of the foley, like the water actually draining – you're you're bringing in more of that real life sound, and it does it does mechanic to pull the viewer sort of out of the context that they were in previously, which is this kind of epic, you know, shots of people meandering with foods, and then pulling it into a very like raw sense of where they are, mm-hmm. hearing that yeah. actual sound effect. So it was some, it was I liked it. That's one thing that I was going to say I really liked about going to Bravos in this episode is that you're completely removed from all that's going on back in Westeros, particularly in King's Landing or at the Wall, uh, and even with Danny uh, out in Marine, uh, there's so much conflict, so much battle going on. But yet here you are uh, in Bravos, and, and you could even make the case uh, for a bit later in the episode when you go to Dorne, and all is peaceful. And it they're completely removed uh, from what is going on in the rest of the world. That's not to say that they're not involved in some capacity, but these people are going about their daily lives as if there is no conflict, there is no strife. And it's nice to see that. That's that's true. I mean, they're uh, trading uh, at the port or, uh, you know, harvesting or moving around some nuts, Arya notices. And, you know, there's probably some fruit and some nuts there that she's never had before. And it's just, it's interesting to see these people going about their daily lives. You're mm-hmm. right. It's like, it's a time of peace. It's a town of they're just they're going about their daily business and she's there to learn to kill people and the captain <laughs> brings her to this monolithic house I of black and white building. that we got to see so much it was, i mean foreboding yeah those four pillars those two monochrome doors <laughs> <laughs> well it's 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 so funny that the building is named for its aesthetic choices because it's only got two of them <laughs> and and it's it's that it's a big fucking building and that the door is black and white <laughs> half black and half white but maybe it is more to do with life and death. I don't know. The light, the darkness. Yes, absolutely. Representing the neutral aspect of the kinds of people that inhabit it. Obviously, we've mm-hmm. learned so far that these people have no sense of self. It's a man thinks this or a man thinks that. And mm-hmm. not not to jump too far ahead, but toward the end of the episode when the reveal to our past friend Jack and Hagar happens, which was very cool. Um, we're not really clear that it's actually him. It could just be another faceless man choosing a face that is maybe available to all of them. That's true. Wouldn't that wouldn't that be a twist if it was like him, but not? Well, unlike the uh, welcome that we gave to our listeners and allowed them in upon first knock into <laughs> the house of <laughs> Two knocks. Game of Owns, uh, Arya does not get so lucky. In fact, she gets denied hardcore uh, by the man who answers the door. And she just decides that because she has nowhere else to go, she's going to chill out on the steps. Ah, she has everywhere she has else everywhere to go. Everywhere else to go. <laughs> Cersei, 
Walter Frey, the mountain, Marin Trent. Trent. One day later, Cersei, Walter Frey, the mountain, <laughs> Marin Trent. She, bless Arya, she only leaves to go find food. Just a handful <laughs> of creative shots using the front of the building. Just like, all right, we really need to stretch this space. This is where she is. We'll, we'll, this is a great vertical point of view, and we'll pull her into the foreground. Or this angle with a nice little little bend up and a nice little dolly into a bend. I think it's very astute of her to recognize uh, that it's a test or that it appears to be a test. It's a test that she passes. I don't know if they were just waiting for her to behead a poor, poor pigeon before letting her into the house. <laughs> that was like what the whole end game was. But her staying outside of it for at least, we can say, a night, um, you know, determinedly uh, mentioning the names of the people that she wants to learn to kill wants to kill one day, um, was not doing it. And it was only after she went and got some food that uh, that man appears and obviously scares everybody else off and gets her in. But I don't know what kind of a, a test that was uh, because ultimately he went right into the teacher role and explained the fact that the man she's looking for does not in fact have uh, the name that she thinks he does or mm-hmm. any name. I just think it's beautiful to finally see Arya in a place like this. You know, she's been wearing the same outfit for a very long time. <laughs> She's been traveling the same sort of road for a very long time with a handful of different companions. And it's been a long journey since the Sept of Baelor. And now she's finally in Bravos, And we've been waiting for this moment for a very, very long time. So for us as an audience, I felt like, and just judging by all the things that people have been saying, I feel like it's just a cathartic release to finally Mm -hmm. see her here in Bravos, And to see her stand with Needle. And to see her, I guess now she's, she's... formidable scary you know she told the boys that wanted her sword she was like turn around and go all of a sudden now she's hardened you know that kind of that look on her face when they were arriving i feel like it's we're getting shown a very different aria for a purpose it was very stannis like i wanted to go back and watch the other episode to see if stannis had the same facial expression <laughs> when he was arriving in bravos that's that's interesting yeah no that's a good point someone do that and be able to compare the faces side by side Eric, you mentioned the the pigeon, and I couldn't help but think of that being a throwback to the Baylor episode when she killed the pigeon mm-hmm. in King's Landing. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, yeah, and they also mentioned pigeon pie, don't they? This uh, <laughs> this episode, another wonderful scene that I'm yeah. sure we'll get to later. But oh, gosh. Um, the incredible. pigeon beheading, Absolutely I wrote incredible. in my. It's super incredible. Oh, lawless. Um, but uh, you know this pigeon beheading, I could have done without i mean nice nice swipe yeah Arya, good, good on you good <laughs> it was on you a great swipe this is probably the decapitation that hurts me the most though well, let me just say that <laughs> pigeons in metropolitan areas they they're more trusting of us humans so if she would have been able to kill a wild bird per se i'd been a little bit more impressed oh there you go this one was baiting so- her that's a yeah. good idea. So <laughs> <laughs> you can do better, are you? You were mentioning the test though, Eric. I think that yep. the reason this faceless man approached the alleyway was let's say that the test was being was happening and that it was all just random. And of course it was random. Like those boys were clearly just just hanging around in the alleyway. They saw a girl with an easy to find sword and they're like, It's worth a hundred pigeons, so we could just take it from her. There's a few of us and just one of her. But when she said, Nothing's worth anything to dead men, he immediately oh. appeared. Which I feel like that's almost a call sign to the kind of person that would be allowed into that building. That's like a um, like a Dumbledore's not gone. Only uh, as long as those here remain loyal to him, and then Fox shows up. It's like the calling, 
of the try to make a Harry Potter reference there. But yeah, um, <laughs> super badass <laughs> of that guy. I, I have a feeling he was following her ever since she left. But he revealed himself after she revealed herself to be worthy. Let's remember she threw the coin into the water, and yet somehow he had it in his hand when he showed up there. Well, they're great fishermen in Bravos. <laughs> that is true. That is true. So we go from Bravos to Westeros and are with our good friends Brienne and Pod. Uh, happened upon yet another inn. Yet another inn. And I have no trouble saying this, and I hope that you guys agree, and it's not really a negative. It's just more of my own feelings on it. But I was surprised at how quickly Pod and Brienne came upon Baelish and Sansa. Why? They were together in the last episode, weren't they? That's true, but I completely agree. Together in what sense? Well, you mean we we mentioned last week that the, the, uh, the carriage passed... Uh, yeah, where, where but that's not a, together. No, I mean together in that. Well, they're all in the same geographic. Like it was established last week right. that they are, and if they're heading the same cardinal direction, it makes sense they would both stop at the same hop in place. Uh, <laughs> Must be good food if it's crowded, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. What, but that's what surprised me though too is because they with this show loves its near misses, right? Uh, exactly. Characters that know each other, and so I wasn't expecting to see her again, even though they were in the same geographic area. I'm like, okay, they're just going to go north or some crap. They actually find each other and get a second chance at the whole "I was your mother's protector" thing. And Brienne, I mentioned this, I think probably before we were recording, but she doesn't have that good of a track record with protecting Starks or people in general, people that she's sworn to protect. And unfortunately, Sansa throws this in her face, but. I don't know. There, there may be some redemption. Like if we had to weigh, or sorry, if we had to rate all of Brienne's interactions where she swears to protect somebody, this might have gone a little bit better than Arya's. What do you guys think? I mean, it's tough to say. It was a failure on both sides. So really, yeah. you just want to stay black and white with it. She just, she didn't succeed. <laughs> but let's do that this whole episode. Let's just stay black and white. Mike's point, though, the show has been really just George's writing in general has given us this. The sense of anxiety in the storytelling of of these near misses, and I thought it was it was cleverly done in the last episode. It was a little in our face, but it was very cleverly done. Mm-hmm. I did not expect them to meet or to be in the same place, and I certainly did not expect Brienne to just walk up and start the conversation and kneel and get right down to the business. I feel like we've been we've been conditioned so far in the show to expect something very different. So on one hand, it's neat that they're shaking it up. On the other hand, it's kind of a kind of a a break from what we're used to seeing. And I don't think that it's a bad thing. I just think it felt different. I think that it might it's something that we should probably get used to as these seasons pace much closer to the very end because it's only so long that these characters aren't going to be able to see one another. And it's only so long like the moment with Stannis and John that we're not going to be able to feel such grand emotion when it comes to things. So yeah. I agree. Right. I, I think it was a bit rushed from a pacing standpoint. Not that they were in the same physical location, but just to your point, how quickly Brienne stood up, walked over, mm-hmm. knelt down next to Sansa, starts getting into it with Baelish, yeah. then blows out of there, kills a few people, takes off on their horses, mm-hmm. and uh, you know eventually saves Pod's ass a little bit later on and kills a few more of House Aaron. She prepped for it. She just told him to get the horses and he or the horse. We have one horse, my lady. <laughs> Littlefinger begins his his sort of campaign of deconstruction. You can see it happen immediately. She she he references meeting her with Renly, saying her loyalty came free of charge, and now 
obviously she's been sort of paid well, I suppose, for her loyalty, which is a dig because you know that Baelish knows better. Yeah. He's constantly making looks back to Sansa. When she kneels and says that she's that she was Lady Catelyn's sworn sword, Baelish says, I've known her since she was a girl and she's never mentioned you. It's like, let's get real. Like, first off, Brienne clearly wasn't born when you've known her since she was a girl. And clearly you haven't been in contact with Catelyn because she's been with Rob doing things that the King of the North would do during wartime. The only time that you saw her was at the place that you met Brienne for the first time and also she met yeah. Brienne for the first time. So this yeah. is clearly when you see oh. someone playing dumb and using information at their advantage that he's he's doing this to Sansa but I feel like Sansa obviously knows better you know like obviously oh, yeah. she I, knows I better. hope I mean she still doesn't take Brienne on which I think would be like the biggest thorn in in Baelish's side and I think what we're seeing here is Baelish you know having to think on his feet mm-hmm. you know it, it's agree like, 100% we know that people what is it with like people walking up to people in pubs and introducing themselves like the way Catelyn first captured Theon or Tyrion. Uh, so it's just, it's pretty funny that um, this, this happened this way, but I think, yeah, Baelish is just reacting. If if his reaction, if his immediate thought is to call things out, like her Lannister armor, just the way the Hound did and uh, try and turn her against Sansa. You know, I think I really do believe Sansa made her own decision here. Uh, but I, even though I think it was the wrong one, but Baelish, it, it actually gives me hope that he's not as intelligent as we thought he was because he's just like, he, as you said, Zach, he just plays dumb and he kind of gives shitty responses to why she's not a good knight or, or anything like that. He was just trying hard. He was using a lot of yeah. qualifiers when I don't think that he needed to. Sansa is in a place surrounded by armed men with someone who is a lord. And clearly she's she's learned enough at this point to to be silent when she needs to be silent and to speak when she needs to speak. She's. She's coming into her own. I think that that was established with her accepting the ale offer and then sort of asking Baelish leading questions like, does it give you courage? And he mentioned that the ale gives some men courage. Like these are these are grown up questions, essentially. And it's different from the Sansa that was rescued and brought onto the boat. So true. uh, I feel like we're getting staggered plot progression and character progression. And it just it just happened kind of quickly. It's just uh, it's 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 very much a scene for me of the pot calling the kettle black because uh, Baelish is trying to throw more dirt in her face and he mentions that people suspected it was her that killed Renly and then he mentions that he's Sansa's uncle because he married her aunt right before her uh, aunt's my beloved uh, like timely <laughs> his beloved's uh, untimely death and I'm like which you caused bastard and Sansa knows that so it's like you know nothing is I think he just disproved himself because sometimes people have to die (laughs) yes and no though she she like that's them being on a team like he's he's establishing that team perspective not only by saying that we're family now but by telling a false story about something that they both witnessed it's like it's like an end thing you know what i mean when if, if if they're lying to someone for a certain reason like if he's showing his innocence or showing his his grandeur or his or, or the reason that he would be so untrustworthy right now by him telling this lie that they're both in on. I feel like it just strengthens strengthens their resolve a bit. And mm-hmm. I don't think, I think that some viewers may walk away from this thinking that Sansa is, is being befuddled or bewitched or just fooled in general by Baelish. But I don't think that that's the case. I think that when Brienne was speaking about before your mother died and you know that that sort of longer shot if we go back and watch where she's looking at Brienne and considering things I don't think that she disregards this person wholly I definitely think that when she mentioned kneeling in front of the king 
um, she was upset. And I, I don't think that she trusts Brienne, but I think that that's just a mechanic of what she's been led to be mm-hmm. trained with so far. Brienne, too, is is honest to a fault, and it's shown through in this particular scene when she was talking about how Renly was killed. And I think uh, Baelish bringing up, well, and how exactly did he die? And she goes into a story about how a shadow with the face of Stannis Baratheon was responsible for it. It makes Brienne seem less credible, Definitely, and yeah. I think that's why Baelish was what he was getting at. Ultimately, he led to it. Was yeah. trying to paint her as somebody who was not only unreliable and unable, as was already mentioned, to protect both Renly and Catelyn, but somebody who's just creating these ridiculous stories that really have no basis in truth. Because let's face it, has Sansa ever seen? anything that would suggest Not that yet, something yeah. the likes no, of a Sansa has shadow only seen the cold hard non-magical truths of the world she's not seen uh mm-hmm. ever since the death of her dire wolf she's not seen anything that i would characterize as being magical mm-hmm. and how about the fact that she calls her lady sansa in a bar mm-hmm. with a bunch of people mm-hmm. around mm-hmm. well i think yeah, baelish is gonna have baelish to happen. kill every fucking person in that whole bar he probably <laughs> did that. do you think that he would have Killed her yes. and Pod? Uh, that's tough because I'm wondering what he's going to say to... Like, I'm wondering what the Sansa-Brienne relationship is going to be moving forward because will she just be like, oh, that woman got away. Oh, I admire her more. Or will that woman got away. Oh, I should look out for her. You know, like, I don't know where Sansa reads. It's, like, impossible to read Sansa. She's doing her best unreadable mm-hmm. mystery person. Even us. I wonder if, yeah, I wonder if Brienne's escape would actually help or hurt her uh, Sansa's opinion of her. Like us, Sansa saw the look that Baelish gave to the guards when he said, it's dangerous out there, why don't you stay? He gives them a look as if to say, you know, seize them, but or seize her, but not aggressively. Essentially, she can't leave because she knows too much. So it's really strange. We can only use what we've learned of Sansa at this point. I hope that listeners don't and viewers don't forget the kind of person that she is and where she's come from as she's spending time with someone we know to be this diabolical madman that has mm-hmm. planned and orchestrated so much. Like she's doing what she has to do in this case and she's doing it well. Are you saying, I, I feel like there was a, a bit of character moment at the end of last season where she, there's that one scene with her embellished after uh, Liza's death, or maybe it's before where, where she basically, um, Oh yeah. He comes to thank her for protecting him about the whole thing. And she really like resolves herself to, following him and it's very clear that it's because he's the devil she knows do you think that that resolve has just like strengthened to the point where she's not accepting help from someone who's even you know actually competent in brienne simply because there's that factor of doubt and with baelish there's not that because she knows exactly what he wants or so she thinks i think she's smart and she realizes the fact that brienne was also at the wedding and she has had relations that's probably not the best word. <laughs> she has a relationship with Jamie Lannister, and I think she's very wary of anybody who she knows to have had some sort of relationship with the Lannisters to possibly take her and bring her back. Remember, she was thought to be complicit in Joffrey's murder with Tyrion, and remember Shay's uh, testimony. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and even without her testimony, I think Cersei would believe that Tyrion and Sansa conspired to kill Joffrey. So so anybody who's coming from those parts, even though she may be claiming that she swore an oath to Catelyn, it, it's difficult for Sansa to trust in anybody. And I think 
for the time being, she trusts Littlefinger to an extent, but we're going to see that the only person she can really trust, uh, as is the case with a lot of these characters, is herself. And there was one thing I wanted to bring up that happened in the conversation between Sansa and Baelish prior to Brienne interrupting, and that was the mention of a marriage proposal being mm-hmm. accepted. Yeah. And Sansa immediately assumes that it's Baelish's that's been accepted, but I'm not so sure I believe that. I wouldn't have caught that. I would not have caught that had you not pointed that out, that it, that it might not be his. He's there picking the bones out of his food, and he's so <laughs> he's so... In, or content with what's happening. Yeah, I, I, it's not likely that he's being remarried. He's the Lord of the Vale. And unless he's got another eye on another piece of land, I don't think that he's going to pull the the same ruse twice so close in succession to one another. So, But, but does he care about uh, Sansa enough to marry her to someone actually good? Or is it more of a territory? Is he just using her like a pawn, like he like a puppet, like he uses so many others, just to get more stuff for him? Like to what extent he rescued Absolutely. her from the capital? But but which is it? Like he rescued her from the capital. So is it was that for his own gain, or was that genuinely out of a love and a want for revenge for Catelyn? It's a tough call. I don't think yeah. it was it was a want for revenge for Catelyn. I don't think that he has that kind of passion inside of him unless he really did truly love her which again i don't know what having peter baelish's love would would mean for something (laughs) like like retribution and then there was one other thing kind of in this sequence towards the end when pod was talking to brienne after she had cut down a bunch of men from house aaron and pod posed the question and i thought it was pod what what an amazing job by him here you know really sort of the thinker uh, despite all that's happened around him, he asks her if Arya and Sansa have refused her services, does it make her released from her vows? It should. I think a less stubborn person would see it that way, but she's Brienne, and her plan, as she tells Pod, to follow them is brave in a way because, you know, she knows they have more men than just, and that they have no men. But I think it's it's pretty stupid um, because Sansa very clearly doesn't want her help. And I, I don't think that anyone in this world is lucky enough anymore that to have someone like Brienne at your side when you're when she's needed most. I think at the end of the day, Sansa, it's less about her relationship with Baelish, the ins and outs of their interior relationship that's keeping her away from Brienne. I mean, just look around. Look at what technically is, is there, what's available. Um, Brienne appeared to be alone. With stories about a shadow faced thing, <laughs> a, a shadow with a face. It's just, you know, using using sheer numbers and tactics. Like she she's been in the capital for so long. Why would she leave the sort of comfortable situation that she's in? And I don't think that that necessarily releases Brienne from her vow. I mean, just she, Brienne sees what Sansa's doing. She sees the position that she's in. Brienne's been to the capital. Brienne's been through the ringer in her adventure thus far. And I think it's clear that she's going to stop at nothing to, to try and take someone out of a situation because at the end of the day, Sansa was literally in front of Baelish when she said all those things. And we know that Sansa knows how to dig in to say the wrong, the right things that feel wrong. She knows how to cut deep when it's time to cut deep. It's the same when when Tyrion was dismissing Shay. Like he, the things that he said, he didn't necessarily believe, but he knew that he could use them as facts because those facts were there. So she could use those facts against Brienne to try to 
throw her off the scent essentially because Sansa knows how intent Baelish is on his own plan. And this interruption would only lead to the death of someone that swore their sword to her dead mother. So I just feel like, I don't know, we're in a strange situation because they both know more than they want to say out loud. And in Brienne's case and in Podrick's case, I don't think that they want to give up. Podrick is probably just trying to help Brienne out in this situation. Obviously, he'll follow her to heaven and hell if he needs to. Such a loyal squire. Curious horse rider when just yelling, stop, stop, like there was a bit of humor. (laughs) (laughs) I will say this, though. That boy wanted some ale bad. He did, right? She was like, more ale. And he, the, the, literally the brightest, most sincere smile I've ever seen in my Hashtag life. Hashtag pod smile. Wonderfully played. The end of mm-hmm. circumstance, uh, the end of whatever name we want to give it does not fail <laughs> us, uh, again. I was kind of disappointed not to see other familiar faces, but I don't know. A lot happened. And that sequence is something that we'll obviously touch on more in our follow up episode this week. But it was, yeah. it was just, uh, it was, a lot of things moving all at once and very, very early in this episode. Very early. And good chance that uh, we know where they're headed. Right. They'll yeah. know where Baelish we, ultimately... We do. Well, Brienne sees her up. moving forward, sees them riding quickly away on the high road, which they're heading north and they're in a specific direction. And I think it has a lot to do with everything that we've spoke about so far. So without leading too much into that i think all of you listening at home can draw your own conclusions there in addition to uh being introduced to bravos in this episode uh in a way i guess we hadn't before because we just went to the iron bank we were also introduced to dorn and i think that uh it was set up well by the scenes between cersei and jamie uh, a little bit before that and uh them talking about marcella and them not being comfortable with the fact that Marcella is in Dorne, surrounded essentially by a bunch of vipers uh, who would like nothing better than to see the Lannister family uh, destroyed. And what better way to get to Cersei than through her daughter? And uh, there was that scene with the snake that was sent to Cersei along with the Pendant that there are only two of in the world. Cersei has one, Marcella has the other, and it was a clear threat uh, from who directly. I don't think we know, but I'm guessing we can make some assumptions here. Well, I feel I feel like when we finally uh, or when we do get to Dorne, there's somebody who's clenching their fists, and I feel like that is is like a dead giveaway almost about who the culprit in Dorne might be. Well, just judging by what she said, definitely. Yeah, and, and this is the same token that we saw at the end of the season that was kind of setting up this storyline that, or the end of the last season, that kind of that viper present in that curious box without a note, without any kind of wording, but you know that says so much, obviously. No, the Cersei and Jamie thing—it's super charged with emotion, and I'm kind of tired of Cersei cutting on Jamie, making cuts, but he's ultimately just there to protect her and and do what's right by both of them. So I, I, this is one of those, I felt it's one of the stronger scenes. It is a goodbye scene, uh, which they've had before, I think. So there's that, but it's just, it's, he's got to do what he has to do. And it's, it's odd now that she'll be left alone. In- it seems to me though, that she puts a lot of blame on his shoulders. And clearly yeah. she still thinks Tyrion responsible for Joffrey's death. But part of me can't help but think that she also blames Jamie in a way for not being able to protect their children, which 
he has a big issue with not so loud uh, that being said out loud yeah okay. exactly and she mentions joffrey's death she mentions marcella being in dorne and of course tommen now on the throne and i think it finally hits a chord with jamie to say well i need to do something so i'm going to go to dorne i'm going to find our daughter i'm going to bring her back no matter what it takes and i'm not going to ask prince doran i'm going to tell him more or less is what he said i'm paraphrasing a bit there um or maybe he's not even going to tell him maybe he's just going to take her and that's going to be the end of it I, cersei and this scene very curious you know obviously upset i'll burn their cities to the ground if they touch her um it's that says a lot when jamie offered to go to dorne she was sort of smirking in disbelief but jamie just wants to please her he wants he wants to to make up for all of these wrongs and to enter a place where their their rapport and their relationship is is less charged with all this negativity and as her father and as as a, a father that has never been to be never been able to be there I, I i suppose that he sees this as his way for for making up for a lot of that and some kind of karmic retribution and I feel like even though Cersei seems like she thinks it's a bad idea when he's when he mentions that he doesn't really know where she is, she just sort of casually goes, "Well, Oberyn mentioned the Water Gardens, you know, like okay, well, yeah. there's a little information there. Thank you for that information. <laughs> I guess you, I guess you kind of do want me to go." And then she, you know, I kind of feel like she feels satisfied in that case that he's putting himself in danger to, and and moving forward with this plan. And allows another dig and says uh, a one-armed man or a one-handed man who really can't defend himself is going alone. And that's where he obviously says, never said I was going alone. And that's such a great where cut. Where we see in his fucking castle and his wife or wife-to-be or castle-to-be, really. Um, that that scene, that estate, I want to know where that is in real life because I love to vacation there. That was just very oddly peaceful. And I don't feel like Bronn is quite tired of that uh lifestyle just yet i feel like he's still kind of enjoying those strolls along the water he is obviously a swordsman through and through it's probably why he says yes although of course jamie gives him good incentive uh to, to leave but i i think i jet i genuinely think that he is uh very very happy um where he is right now and he looks he's he's dressed well he's got this thing he's got future's looking up for Bron. We see a very content Bronn, you know? I feel like with all the trouble that he's been through, the Battle of Blackwater and his best friend going on trial, it feels nice to walk along the beach with a girl that adores music, hates flutes, wants <laughs> pigeon pies, and wants nothing more hop, than to marry. Definitely no flutes. <laughs> Our beautiful, wonderful man. He calls her dear, I think, some kind of loving pet term name some kind of term of yeah there we go term of endearment and he stares up at a state castle stoke where he's like no I thought I'd end up settling down in a place like this <laughs> and he just can't help but to feel a little bit of solace in the story for this one casual stroll skipping stones across the water good sweet lawless who had uh, a lot happen to her back in uh season two I think uh, we all remember that scene we do. where Sansa was saved by the Hound. Lawless was not as lucky. But uh, I think we saw a bit of the sellsword brawn at one point when Lawless was talking about her sister uh, and how that in that whole uh, inheritance... Uh, not going to go as you planned. <laughs> yeah, I think Bronn may have been uh, 
showing his hand. Planning planning for the future a bit. Yeah. Uh, once he heard uh, the the story of um, Lalas' sister and, and the fact that she would inherit all of this first. Um, never know what that man uh, would would go to in order to secure his own uh, well-being. Well, he planted the seeds for it. I think he handled it really t- tenderly, right? He was just like, oh, bad people get what they deserve. It all comes around. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's just, well, uh, that I, line, it all comes around, I think, so was a little lot. bit of a, <laughs> a hint, shall we say. Uh, but it doesn't matter at the end of the day, does it? Because Lalas is not going to be his, nor is House Stokeworth. Right. So... Uh, he's going on adventure. Can I just say, though, a girl that's still at their age, and she's even the elder sister, still pulls her hair when mother's not looking? It's just yeah. like, come on. So, yeah, uh, Ron's not too far off the mark here. You know, being all over the world, if there's one thing I've learned, some meanness comes around. I thought it was very astute and kind of like a nice little comedic way to, to give us more lessons in the middle of the storytelling, which the writers have done a really great job of integrating. Lawless, I'm sad to say, nice even, if, even if her sister were to turn up dead, I don't think that uh, she would ever suspect poor old old Bron, old hubby, all new hubby, new heir Bron. Especially with such fantastic friends as he had. She's like, well, who is that? And it's Jamie fucking Lannister. <laughs> <laughs> Hiding in the grass. It's like a wild Jamie appears. He's there. He knows what he wants. He wants Bron to come with him. Well, I want his jerkin. It was very fashionable, very studly. Mm, yeah, I was. was very jealous. The uh, costume department on the show stepping their game up with a nice, nice soft Lannister burgundy slash red. It was beautiful. Lawless was quite starstruck in the moment, I believe, especially when Jamie kissed her hand. We had a nice greeting. So Jamie, so Bron of the Blackwater. It was just, it felt good. You know, it feels good to get those moments with these characters that we enjoy so much. Yeah, it, it was a uh, reunion of sorts, right? Uh, at least in so much as Bron was best buds with Tyrion for such a long period of time. And now he's going on an adventure with Tyrion's brother, Jamie. So be interesting to see how those two travel together, uh, knowing uh, the great fun and spin-off sitcoms we could have had with Bron and Tyrion. I don't, I don't know it'll be as good, but I'm sure there's going to be uh, some interesting <laughs> situations that the two of those, uh, that the two of them, I should say, uh, get into. So, and by the way, Bron. Uh, is going to be getting a much better girl and a much better castle. Yeah, from I guess all of he's this. temporarily a uh, bachelor right now uh-huh. because Lawless is promised to another. Mm-hmm. Oh, Sir Willis Bracken, maybe your 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 plots will lead you to inheriting Castle Stokeworth yourself. We'll see. But Bron is out of the picture, and uh, they're heading as far south as south goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what does that what does that mean? I mean, I know I've seen the map, but it just I wonder what prevents there from being more south. Maybe it's just technology, water. Water. There's nothing beyond the water. I mean, it's not as narrow as the narrow sea, but really, there's nothing down there. So, coincidentally, in the next scene, we go as far south as south, south can go. Goes. Yeah, do. wow, that's a nice transition there, uh, Thrones team. But no, I, I really, I'm finally we saw Dorne, uh, a little bit of it anyway, and we also saw the Water Gardens, which turns out that's exactly where Marcella is, and uh, <laughs> literally there. <laughs> In the Literally water there as they speak or as Duran speaks to Ilaria. But I, I feel like um, with the, the, the clenching of Ilaria's fists and her resentment, which she makes quite clear, uh, there is going to be political dissent in Doran. And I'm wondering, guys, did you feel like Doran's uh, life may be in danger at the hands uh... of his own people? <laughs> You think I? This is it. Made me reach a moment when I was watching the show, and I don't, 
I'm not proud of this, but I kind of just looked around and was like, uh, is this, <laughs> do we really need to be this upfront about it? <laughs> when he says, uh, we do not mutilate little girls for vengeance, not here, not while I roll. And she goes, and how long will that be? Yeah. <laughs> Storms her off. parting threat. She's very, there's a little on the nose. Which can you imagine uh, somebody of Alaria's standing, which obviously is much different in Dorne. Right. Imagine if she did that in King's Landing. Oh, I mean, she's a nobody. Right. She, she's Only not Tyrion from get away a royal shit. family. Yeah. Well, Tyrion's Lord Tyrion. You know, it's a bit different. Yeah. Yeah. He's Tywin Lannister's son. So, but I, I wonder. I wonder how much of that is true. I mean, here's the thing: his own men, his one protector guy, who's who's guarding and doesn't immediately let Elaria in. He's guarding Duran, and he hears this. And it's important. I think that this show and real life has shown you should probably look strong. Um, you know, in front of your protectors, lest they think you're weak and go for the other guy. Um, but he allows Alaria to say that and walk out alive. And I'm wondering if that means he's actually a weak ruler, which is all she's trying to say. Well, I definitely think that it was. It, it just it, it like like Mike said, this is a different place, and the fact that she was able to get away with that, it either has to do. We don't. I don't. I don't know enough about Dorne's geopolitical landscape to say that they're more or less flexible. I know that from what Braun said, that they're pretty hard and folk. And I know just from what we've seen so far that these are fairly hard and folk. So I would like to say that it's either her relationship that Prince Doran mentions with Oberyn that gives her such a strong place in his, in his heart from now until whenever, or it's because of the kind of person he is and the kind of ruler that he is. And if the Dornish people are as for going to total war as as they as she says as sort of their mouthpiece then i mean there could be some kind of revolt but i i feel like his point over and being slain during a trial by combat is completely sound if this yeah. would have been an all-out murder then it would have been completely different but at the end of the day the dornish weren't there except the representatives weren't there to see the fact that Oberyn was kind of showboating and he technically could have won the fight and everything would have been fine otherwise. And I feel like if if she is the loudest mouthpiece coming back home and reporting what happened, especially to the Sand Snakes that she mentioned, who have this vast amount that's of love true. for their people, then I feel like she's probably sewing a story that's not quite 100% accurate. And that's, you know what I mean? That, that yeah. tells a much different, more aggressive spin on the tale. If she were honest with herself and others, yeah, you're right. She would have even less of a case for going up there, for getting angry about it. I understand why, why she's upset, though. I mean, it sucks. It was horrible. And the way he died and the way that the Lannisters were so happy about it and how they were, they, you know, they were the, the history that they have already... With their family, not to mention adding insult to injury, the prince's brother being killed the way that he was killed by the person that did those bad things in the past. It, it's all it's all horrible. It's just not good for the situation. It's all and very I, dramatic. Exactly. And I feel like the Dornish, they definitely have a podium to stand on in this. But um, what Prince Doran says, if all of the other people in Dorne were the people that made those decisions then or it's a good thing that all of those people don't make these decisions for the kingdom, right? That it's good that he's the one that's able to kind of over, oversee everything and to make the the best decision, which is, by law, that is not a murder. He's been my brother long before he was anything to you, and this is the country that I rule, and this is the kind of country that will be. We will not cut her fingers off and mail them to Cersei one finger at a time. We're a different kind of people than that. Whereas we have 
I guess, another sect of the population that's wanting to rise up into some kind of descent and chaos. It's just interesting. It's not unusual that there would be a call for vengeance. It it opens old wounds, certainly for many in Dorne because of what happened to Elia. Mm -hmm. And now Oberyn has died effectively at the hands of the Lannisters. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's Cersei's champion. The same guy He's who defending killed. <laughs> Tyrion. Yeah, and the same guy who yeah. is responsible for the deaths of, of Elia and right. her children. And so don't think uh, at the end of the day, though, that somebody uh, the likes of Doran Martell is not planning in his own right uh, or hasn't been planning for some time in his own right uh, to get back at the Lannisters uh, or to those who he feels is ultimately responsible uh, for what has happened. Uh, Alaria, actually, and, and I'm sure we're going to see a lot of stories about this, particularly this week, uh, it, it took the place of a character, Ariane Martell, uh, who is a point of view character in the books, Ooh. and she's the niece of Oberyn, and she seems to be taking on this this role that that works because we know Alaria. She was there in King's Landing when Oberyn was killed, and I think that it it serves the right purpose for the show. Uh, but it's going to be one of those discrepancies. I think a lot of people will have issue with, particularly because Arion is a, is a beloved book character. So oh. uh, we learn about this. Uh, I'm sure a little bit later on as we do our readings, but it's it's just something uh, to throw out there. Uh, but I'm excited that we are actually now uh, in Dorne. Finally, uh, we see Marcella, uh, and uh, she appears to be fine, at least for the time being. You are my she queen. Appears, she appears to enjoy. Yeah, that guy, the boy who's with her, calls her his queen in the Tristan. in the garden. So, no, I, I, I love the Water Gardens, and uh, ever since seeing that day in the life... Would you like to play in the Water documentary, Gardens? Documentary. <laughs> uh, I, I feel like... Um, I would. I was I was looking forward to, to seeing it on the screen, and it looks great on the screen. But I, I think to Alaria and Doran's conversation regarding Marcella, actually watching, seeing Marcella bounce up and down, you know, as she skips or whatever in the garden with this boy, uh, I can understand how somebody like Alaria would take it as an insult, considering what the Lannisters have done to their family just in the past. But currently, I mean, there's no beef with Marcella. Marcella herself is innocent, has done nothing wrong. And really, Doran's uh, adamance about not harming her, about not shipping her back to her mom in little boxes or whatever it is that she said she wanted to do, is very reminiscent of Oberyn. When he told Cersei that they do not harm little girls in Dorne, he was merely speaking what ended up being his brother's code. And his brother's code is the same, and that's how they're linked. And I think, you know, again, talking about uh, Duran's vulnerability here, I think that he's going to be the character that we're meant to like. Not yeah. Alaria, which actually says a lot, considering, Mike, as you said, Alaria's replacement, or the character who she replaces, is apparently well-loved. That's interesting. I mean, it makes sense that the way that they're writing this, that Alaria would sort of pivot from the happy-go-lucky person that she was before if she lost the man that she loved and sort of become this, this mouthpiece for this, for this reign that, or for this plight that should take place. But Prince Dorian does remind me so much of his brother and I like his character. I, I feel like I want to see more of this guy and I wish I would have seen him, you know, walk around some and do a little bit more than sit, but it was, uh, a little taste of Dorn. Nice. Well, to he's see. stricken by gout, I, so. right? I, which was something I was curious how to see how they captured. But I felt like 
it's even just a more bit of a dramatic turn on that. Like, well, he hasn't, like, we don't know how the show is adapting that injury or if they will at all. And I know that's kind of a weird thing to look forward to, but we, we know yeah. from our reading those things about him. And I kind of just wanted to see how that was adapted. So I think he's, he's we'll see in it. a wheelchair. He's in a chair with wheels, I think. Um, oh. Yeah, I, I think I think he's. Yeah, I think I think he's in a, a chair with wheels, and that may mean he can't walk. Uh, well, but I I I do look forward to seeing it. it. It's it's just sad because I feel like they're they're introducing you know Prince Duran, who's uh is he, now Mike is he he is the the one ruler in Dorne right now. He's a he's a prince, but they haven't made mm -hmm. him a king. There's nobody. Well, him. we don't want to go calling people kings because that might piss <laughs> off Cersei and. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All that, the Lannisters. That's a good point. All right, because what I wanted to say was I hope they're not introducing us to another leader of a bunch of people who's going to die, because that and 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 at least if they do, I hope he lasts longer than his brother did in a, you know one season. But it can't be the I, Seven I Kings like, without Dorne. I, uh, I, it wouldn't be the Seven Kings without Dorne, you know, until they return to the fold. I just hope I I, I have a, I have high hopes mm -hmm. for for Doran. I hope he squashes. I hope he's seasoned enough to squash more peacefully the revolt that is no doubt being uh, waged by Ilaria and possibly Oberyn's daughters, the Sand Snakes. Well, I think mm. it'd be interesting to see this result, uh, this revolt, though. So there's that. So as a viewer, yeah. and as oh, someone yeah. who's not in immediate TV. harm, yeah, it would I'm make... just recalling something from a preview that uh -huh. makes me a little bit unsettled oh, that God. we saw in the trailers. If you remember, there was a shot of the Sand Snakes surrounding somebody who was buried in the sand yeah, that with a scorpion. Yeah. Looked a lot like our little friend, the guardsman. Did it? And he's not a very little man, to be honest with you. Oh. So while Marcella appears to be safe for the time being, there is uh, one son of the harpy who <laughs> is definitely not. <laughs> and this sequence was beautiful. I loved I loved the, the casual meandering stroll through the alleyways of Marine with, Dario and Grey Worm, someone that I've really grown warm to, Grey Worm, his grunting, his broken English, you know, it's just, it's, we, at first I was just sort of like, okay, this is a new character, I'm not sure how long this person will stick around, but he's definitely sort of carved a place in my heart, and their camaraderie, you know, established, especially with this character at the beginning of last season with their dagger holding contest and who would walk beside the queen is sort of heartwarming, and so seeing them grow even closer together while they're doing something so serious was was a great spin on how they captured it with the show, and I think they're doing a great job with both of these characters as far as just establishing who they are while also pushing the plot forward. So them having some detective work and learning about blending in and whether or not the second sons yeah. are more adapted, it's just a really neat way to do something serious. It was like Dario's trying to giving him advice on how to be what exactly like how more to be human a second son more oh more human you know because he lost yeah. so much of his humanity growing up as an unsullied yeah that's true you don't get any more of like a better punchline than him that line about fear really i don't know it's it is it is funny seeing those two together though kind of i don't know not broing but you know what it is it's just it's a relation it's a it's a teaching moment for uh dario dario's skill set increases every episode uh right now he's a very personable uh, guy who can find people hiding in very tight spaces. In fact, plastered into a wall. <laughs> he just busts through the wall. It's, I don't, there it is. I don't know that that's where I would have checked first, especially if I was unsure. There's a rug. There's. I would have checked the armchair. I would have poked the armchair. And see <laughs> maybe there's an upstairs to that place. I don't know. But he was right regardless, and I don't know how he was, but he was right, that this guy was somehow enclosed in this wall. I don't know how he did that. I mean, I think our listeners are probably – 
queuing for us to discuss this on the show, was the dagger throw and catch necessary for the stab? Right? That's the real question. <laughs> Dario has so was, much style. It may have been necessary for some people's owns. But this this uh was another like entire subplot that wove its way through the episode and became uh just one of this episode's many big stories, big things that happened to our characters. But ultimately, we're in the situation where, not unlike Doran, not unlike King's Landing, Danny's rule is being threatened. It's by the Sons of the Harpy, who we knew, or we started, uh, we met last episode, and what that awful guy did to the poor Unsullied um, in the last episode. But we see the falling action from that. We see the repercussions of that. And Danny's struggling with how to punish this guy basically i like uh how you mentioned eric that it, it kind of goes all throughout this episode but uh we get a little bit of an idea of this character mosador i think i'm pronouncing his name right the right? chief we got, slave yeah exactly who is clearly a, a member on danny's council I, I thought it was really cool that we got uh at least uh, a snapshot at what appears to be her version of the small council yeah. when they're discussing what to do uh, with this son of the harpy. It's clear to me that uh, once he makes uh, the statement that all they understand is blood, that he's not going to be in favor of the idea of a fair trial. Right. Uh, and there is, no pun intended, a lot of bad blood uh, mm -hmm. between the sons of the harpy and the slaves, or the former slaves, I should say. But what I really liked about this particular scene was the interaction between Barristan and Danny mm -hmm. and how he's counseling her, telling her about her father uh, and how you know his way of ruling this this idea of inspiring fear uh, into those that you're responsible for protecting uh, doesn't always have the end game that you want it to. And he really advocated for a fair trial for this person. And that is the direction that Danny decides to go in. He has the perfect amount of sensitivity. He, he says, he says, actually, uh, your grace, here's the thing. Your father was actually fucking crazy in mm -hmm. the nicest way possible. Like in the absolute Those best weren't lies way your enemies told you. She absolutely hears it. And the way that he says uh, that it felt good to her father, that it, that he felt right burning people alive that he felt powerful is possibly like is his attempt at guessing how she will feel sentencing this man to death and it's just such a shame of course we're jumping ahead a little bit but that 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 choice becomes removed from her because she actually heeds his advice and decides to give this this guy a trial and i think that is a step in the right to, towards being the right Danny that is going to be a good leader of Westeros because I've really begun, I think as of last season to starting to question, I know we all have a little bit about how, you know, whether or not she would be a good ruler. And lately she's been very mad kingy in, in, in her <laughs> ex extravagance in, in setting people in, in just basically giving people justice. She's doling out the justice and not doling out the mercy. And we've already heard her thoughts on it. I will answer injustice with, with justice, but I feel like um, Barristan's words were very wise, and in another circ in another situation, under other circumstances, it would have actually worked out in her favor. This is just a disappointing story arc for them to be with in the first place. I would love for it to be a, a more hard hitting than a dissenting group in the city that we've been in since last season. Like not not a dig at the the plot of of the show, but a dig at what's happening in Danny's world. 
that this is something that they it's just this is a this is a group of rebels essentially that should just be rooted out and taken care of not necessarily killed but this should just be either not taken seriously or if taken seriously real action should be done and i realize that that real action that they're trying to to handle the situation i realize that their action is taking place but i feel like there are larger potatoes to fry in this situation and i hope that the sons of the harpy aren't a season long arc because it's like i said mm. at the end of the day it's just it's it's previous or it's old slave owners and masks they're people that like this man said they're people that have been hired by the great families to do their bidding and his Zalorak doesn't know he's a head of a great family and he's not aware of the situation which leads me to believe that it's possible that he could be a member of the council that is also working in integration with those people that are dissenting with how unhappy he is with the situation with the fighting pits. I think that it all might He's be... full of shit, basically. Right. If if that's if that's the case. If that's yeah. the case. Oh, I I trust him, but I'm very trusting. I'm a I'm a terrible mm-hmm. judge of, of who's actually bullshitting Danny. I agree with Zach and and I think the point is made very clearly at the end of the episode when the son of the harpy just before uh he's about to go on trial says to uh Mosador she doesn't belong here, and no matter how many of you traders call her Misa, mm-hmm. she will never be your mother. And I think it just speaks largely to what Danny has come up against in all these different cities that she's tried to overtake. The majority of people don't want her there, and the slaves that she's able to free, she's not able to take care of them, and they're not able to take care of themselves. So it, it's almost like it creates even more dissension than when than before she came there in the first place. These people need one of their own to lead a city, to lead a kingdom as one of their own would. I think it's easy for us to see these places in the East and kind of remove ourselves from the gravity of the situation. But essentially what it is, is Daenerys is conquering and ruling places that are greater than King's Landing, that are greater than the more civilized beacons of hope and security and that our characters have been in the midst of. Like, this is a big deal, what she's doing. There is. It, it, it's it's definitely a, a heavy sequence of events that takes place in this episode and those that have preceded it, especially as it relates to her storyline. I think that what she is ultimately trying to do is alter the course of history, you know, in, in so much as history will be told about these cities. You know, we we learn in our own history about different cities that have been liberated and that's exactly what she's trying to do but she's not as experienced in the ways of ruling and so i think that's coming back to to bite her a little bit and it does in this episode that's all that's what these episodes are all that's what these scenes with danny are all about the fact that she is not as experienced and the fact that these sons of the harpy are the first real challenge she's had in terms of opposition that I can that I can really think of. I mean, she's always overcame. Oh, uh, she's always overcome great obstacles in getting what she wants. She crossed the red waste that wasn't supposed to be doable. Uh, she found her dragons and kicked the ass of the warlocks in the House of the Undying. She broke into Astapor, set it a place ablaze. It's all good. It's all great. But now she's got these sons of the Harpy, and she's really trying to figure out politically right. what her whole rule is going to be. She's she's creating law and that gets mentioned in this episode that the law is the law and she's not the law no one person's the law the law is the law but she's making that stuff up as she goes and 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 this whole trial thing it would have been interesting to see what the first trial under Daenerys as ruler would have actually looked like 
um, I know it got taken from us, but you know, like I, I really respected Danny for giving in to Barristan's advice and also doing it like she thought it was the right thing and being interested in this. And and honestly, even that knowing that they take Mosador and put him to death among uh, amidst great again uh, pleas for mercy and amidst great strife, it creates this huge situation. It's the right thing to do because ultimately people have to know that. Is it? Yes, because people have to realize that freedom does not mean freedom from consequences. And she's not being an oppressor here. She's, you know, being free comes at a cost. You you should still respect the law. It's it's almost like, did she, did she fail to explain that to people? Or is it them just doing whatever the hell they want to do? Because ultimately, there are former masters that are still alive. There are higher families that are still alive. And the it's like the murder of the unsullied aside there was another murder committed uh and it was against a man who was awaiting trial and so it's it's just like it's it's why you can't do those sorts of things it's a hard discussion to have though because a lot of those freed people just saw one of their own killed Mm -hmm. and it aligns danny in their eyes or could potentially with the sons of the harpy so that in and of itself is another problem for her to contend with moving forward. The way they hissed at her. Mm. This is what the sons of the harpy want. You can't just do that though. When you're not happy with a ruling, like, I mean, they did, obviously they did. They want to see this discord. They want to see the people that have been shouting her name and shouting mother toward her direction. They want to see them hissing. They want to see them questioning their leader because the great men in this city know that Daenerys isn't going to be here forever. They know that her end goal is to take Westeros and reclaim the throne that her family once kept. And yeah. this is all part of uh, a way to either worm her out of here, push her away, or to make her react so strongly that the people that support her support her no longer. And if we saw the story from the perspective of of one of these people that lived in Marine, we would see Daenerys as someone who is coming in a stranger a non-native conquering and then establishing the rules that they like to see. Regarding the the execution, though, it's a tough call because if she were to play politics in the situation, she would probably think against <laughs> doing what she did in front of all of the people. Yeah, that's the thing, though. I was going to say that. Why did it have to be a public display? She could have just killed him anyway. She wanted to send a message. And there was no trial because he he completely admitted to it. We could have made the argument that he also could go through a trial, but you know he said that he liberated her from the decision, just like she freed them. She he freed her from having to deal with the politics around it because he knows that she wanted to see him executed as for being a member of that group that's doing so much bad and killing people across the city. So it's all just a big circle of crap. It's chaos, and it's the wheel, <laughs> and <laughs> and it's rough, and and it it's it's not easy. These are not easy decisions for Danny to be given. So it's 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 kind of unfair for us to call her not a a good ruler because she's not trying to rule a kingdom that is in a level state. She's trying to rule a kingdom that is filled with rebels and that are filled with different customs that she does not agree with. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out, but I'd like to see the Sons of the Harpy uh, go away. (laughs) I agree, and and this has been um, a pretty intense conversation, so I think it's time we lighten things up a bit and uh, go on the road with the eunuch and the imp. Uh, Uh, Because that was 
a great scene uh, between the two of them. <laughs> there's just a bug throwing daggers at each other. Yes, there's a bug. Best be you careful. You might actually swallow some swallow solid food. Any scene that Tyrion <laughs> is in is going to be good, whether it's serious Tyrion or the one we tend to like more, which is sarcastic, humorous, playful Tyrion. And he wants to go for a walk, and Varys won't let him. Well, Cersei's offering a lordship to those who bring her your head. What was the line? Uh, what he refers to uh, Cersei's... He says she ought to offer her cunt best part of her for the best part of me. Yeah. He's very, 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 very jaded against her. And, I mean, I feel like that comes from everything he's he's also saying in this scene, that he we know he's missing... He's missing Shay. Yeah. He's dealing That's with true. the fact that he murdered his own father, murdered his lover, who slept with his father... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so this is also a circle of shit, or this is after the circle of shit. This is after the wheel has been broken, and he's on the road with Varys. So he's drinking away his miseries, besides, what else is there to do for me inside this fucking box? Besides yeah. to drink and to woe. And Varys offers him a slightly different conversation. Again, we go back to the thought of Tyrion being a ruler. They're not going to say and speak of the futility of the world and this carriage crossing the East. They're going back. They're reverting to this conversation that Tyrion was quite fit to be a ruler, that Tyrion did a a rather good job, even though he was a servant to the king, essentially. He was a servant to his father's musings, essentially. Tyrion did a good job of taking care of business in King's Landing during a clash of kings. That was something we loved sharing with each other on the show here, chapter by chapter. That was something that we all enjoyed watching during season two. And I feel like we're getting that reminiscent quality where we're constantly referring back to it. And I feel like guys, this is just more and more of Varys looking at Tyrion and we're getting the sense of what he used to say before, but we're getting it out loud. Now we're literally being told. And I feel like we're only maybe an episode or two away from Varys just all out being like, this is the X and Y of the secret society or our, our, our council of people that are making these decisions like we, we talked about last week. Mm-hmm. And we really think that you would be a great person inside of this because you don't look like someone that a bunch of people would follow. You're not a you're not a tall, handsome, strapping lord that makes sense. You're not a, a Misa. You don't have dragons, but you do have a very, very sharp mind. And you're still a man of talent. No, Varys does have a grand plan, and it's evident. I mean, I love uh, our campfire discussion again, talking about who the other council members could be, what what's their end game, do they have a backup, this, that, the other thing. Tyrion is clearly part of their plans, and that's probably directly due to the high regard that Varys has for him. But there's also the reveal of the plan, which is actually not to go directly to Marine, but to uh, Volantis. And I don't know what the hell it means, but Tyrion is just like, why aren't we going to Volantis? And he's like, or why aren't we going to Marine? You said we were going to Marine. What's in Volantis? And he says, that's the road to Marine. And I don't, I don't know what that means, but clearly he's got a plan. Like they have missions to go on. They have uh, adventures that are very specifically located and, and a step. Varys clearly has a plan. This is Varys saying he has a plan. They're going to go one place and then go another. Just for me, this scene, the dialogue between the two of them, there's so much to read into. Uh, and just the way these characters are written and the the way that they talk to each other, the fact that they all feel protected inside this box because they don't want to be exposed to what's going on in the outside world. Mm-hmm. 
but then the reality that they're not satisfied being inside the box and they're going down the road to Volantis inside of a box and it's just just the play on words and and you know that Varys has a a master plan to Eric's point he he's clearly cooking up something and I I, I always have a hard time deciphering his words because there's always a deeper meaning to what he's saying Definitely. it's never just what you what what he says is what you get it's never taking it at face value there's always uh, something that the master of whispers is up to. These words are analogous, so I feel like we could we could lay down thing after thing after thing after thing, and he's implying all of these things at once, which mm-hmm. I think is is part of what makes this conversation so important. And I know that we'll dig into it deeper on our second episode this week, sort of like we did last week. But I'm I'm really looking forward to hearing the thoughts of you guys, not only sending in your owns, but also just your your thoughts in general of what all of this could mean, because I don't know if this is part of the books. I don't know if if that has been reached. I don't know if this is even how it's done. So without giving things away when you're, when you're sitting in your thoughts and questions, (laughs) (laughs) um, I'd like to, I'd just like to know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm curious as to how people feel about this, because I know how I feel and I know that our conversations will reveal, reveal more between the three of us, but I'm curious to know how, this was meant to be taken how so much of this is meant to be taken uh, versus what we all kind of personally pull away from it. Because I feel like it's, it's vague enough that we can have our own sort of personal conclusions, which is a very interesting way to take away from this. I agree. And, and I am also interested to hear what, what the listeners think about these conversations and both Sullied and Unsullied uh, knowing how things uh, play themselves out with Tyrion is your perspective different? Are you, are you okay with how things have uh, been written for, for this season? And I'm fine with it so far. Uh, I'm not going to go into detail. I, I think we can probably talk more about that. Cause I don't think it's really, it's not spoilery necessarily. It's just, you know, similar to what I said earlier about Alaria and, and Ariane. So I, I think we can, we can table that a little bit until later on in the week. But uh, one scene that I found really, really amazing uh this episode was the small council uh that cersei held right or if she can hold a small council it looks like she can't hold some of the members in there it's not appropriate for women to hold the title of hand of the king and what i took away from this scene now is that cersei has sent two of her family members away from king's landing one directly one indirectly and i wonder if that's the smartest decision Jamie's gone. He can't protect her from Dorne should anything happen. Kevin is now going back to Casterly Rock. He can't protect her should anything happen. Is she making the right decisions here? Well, it's funny why, like sort of looking at the reasons why she wants to send him away. Um, he will not be brought to heal. He wants the king. He wants to hear the king's words. And that's, and that's the bottom line is that she's speaking for the king. She's speaking out of turn. There's no way that that Tommen said the things uh, to all about all of those men, especially about uh, Marjorie's father. Like that's all that's all crap. I don't think any of that was actually Tommen. Right, but this is business as usual for the small council. These are how things are done, especially since Joffrey has been, and also King Robert didn't go to the meetings himself. I feel like before we had sort of Tywin's backing behind everything that's been said. So now his mm-hmm. brother's there, sort of just looking at the situation 
and looking at Cersei right. and being like, well, there's no, you know, you are essentially the person making these decisions right now. And it was easy for me to follow my brother Tywin because he was Tywin Lannister, but you're just the queen mother. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He says, I did not return to the capital to serve as your puppet to stack the small council with psychophants. See, he knows exactly who Cersei is, which is very interesting. It's very interesting getting that judgment from a relative of hers because mm. we found— and what did we, he learn from his son? Well, we basically find that— That's true. I think it's just interesting that um, you get a Lannister who isn't as gung-ho about every other Lannister just because they're a Lannister. Um, because Tywin was very close about his, I mean, I, Tywin, uh, reprimanded other Lannisters before and other generals in his army, but it's just interesting how out of, uh, how forcefully Kevin speaks to Cersei about what he will and will not do. And it's really interesting that he does it in the group, not that she gives him much of a choice, but it's, it's, it's interesting to see that other Lannisters are turning their back on, on Cersei. Um, as a matter of, I don't know if it's because she was incestuous. I don't know if it's because she slept with his son, as you mentioned, Micah. But I definitely think something's up, and it's can't it can't be good to see this Lannister walking away from the table. She should probably retain them. Look what's happened so far. It's hard to stand idly and say that King's Landing has been handled and the Iron Throne has been handled well. We now have Tywin being killed by another Lannister. We've had a, a king be assassinated at his own wedding. We've had a king be killed during a boar hunt and be supplanted, essentially, by a bastard that is not his. It's just, as someone who is as wise as Tywin Lannister's brother, you know, and we're just zeroing in on this one situation. We have, obviously, Maester, Grand Maester Pycelle, who is aware. We have Mace Tyrell, who is happy to do whatever he needs to do. <laughs> And we have Kyburn, who is getting what he wants and will ask no questions because his his loyalty is going to go to the person that is essentially giving him what he wants. So it's like if we zero in on this one person who's not hearing of it, I think that he's comfortable to do this because she's not in a place where she can exactly punish him because of who he is. And he can return to ruling Castle Rock. You know, it's not like... It's not like he needs to be in the middle of, of what's happening here. He can be completely against it, and he can say no. He may be the master of war, but it does make sense for, for him to to want to hear these things from the king. I think that the implications are, are very vast, and I think that it's interest, it, will be, it will be interesting to see how Cersei handles this because she's not as aggressive as she could be or has been in the past, and I think that's because she doesn't have ground to stand on. It's, I think it's right for Micah to ask that question because— uh, if Cersei's doing the right thing, because she is actually, not only is she alienating herself, but she won't reveal things to him. Like when he asks about Jamie's mission and she doesn't tell him and that's when he flips out, it's like he wants to give her a shot in a way. You know, it's it's like he, he just feels that if she's going to hide things from him, then she's very clearly the same Cersei that he has known, uh, who uses puppets and uses sycophants, people who suck up to her. To, to do her bidding, and that's something that he won't be a part of. So that's that's great, but if she had just been a little bit more forthcoming or a little bit more outspoken about well, why Jamie is leaving, just the topic at, at hand, instead of telling him that it wasn't his position, because she's acting out of her own, out of her position. So it's just like, oh, I'm done with you. I don't know, it was very bold for him to do that. Well, I mean, it's clear that this is not the time for business as usual. Things have changed at the court. And things will need to change in the court for it to move forward. That much is clear. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to be interesting to watch those small council meetings moving forward. 
Uh, and should Cersei decide to replace Kevin with a different uh, Master of War? We don't know. But I think it's it's a bad move on her part to be alienating members of her family, uh, especially following the death of her father. And as we said uh, after episode one, the vacuum that that leaves uh, in King's Landing, knowing how powerful and uh, influential uh, Tywin Lannister was uh, to the overall Game of Thrones. Oh, nicely done. I think we're all in agreement here that one of the the biggest scenes in this episode uh, takes place, or series of scenes, I should say, uh, at Castle Black. And I don't think we would be doing it justice by trying to squeeze it in here before the end of the episode. I think... Uh, we do have another episode coming up later on in the week, and that will be the focus of that show because I just think it's stacked with so many important moments, um, some that might bring you to tears. Or uh, some, some that, that might, might bring make you, you jump cheers. and I just yeah. tear and have <laughs> goose flesh. I can't handle it. I Literally, literally, the things that happened, more than one thing, which is excellent to be able to say. I've been holding it in this whole episode because we've been, yeah, yeah, talking about all the stuff that's happening. Sons of the Harpy, that's great. Uh, Brianna Pod, that's wonderful. But you all know Jon Snow elected Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. You all know Stannis Baratheon telling Jon to kneel and rise Jon Stark. Come on. Come on. Well, I think you're forgetting that uh, a certain uh, wildling uh, friend of ours learned to read. Yeah, Gilly's learning to read. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Shit is happening at the wall. Eric loves the tender moments. I, I do love the tender moments. Who taught you, your mother? It's just full. And, and we're, I'm beyond, I'm beyond, beyond excited to collect these owns and to collect just, I want to bottle the passion from all of all of you listening and and keep it on a side table for moments of weakness and just know how everyone is feeling and feel how everyone is feeling after these moments that have finally been brought to us. And uh, Uh I'm going to be patiently waiting. I'm going to save everything. I'm going to, I'm going to treat my mind as a temple and consider our next conversation when we, when we speak about the events of Castle Black as sacred. They are, they are very sacred. They, it's just one of those, uh, sequences that you look back on and you realize how many important moments took place and you you touched on the two biggest ones but even I'm thinking about the way that they craftily wove in the youngest daughter of Mage Mormont and what her name was yes. and how that oh was a nice gosh. little drop by oh the showrunners to basically have Aliana be responsible for John potentially rising as the Lord of Winterfell. Well done, David and Dan. I think that uh, if you didn't catch that, uh, it was intentional for sure. Well, <laughs> I'm just going to flat out say that my own of the episode absolutely, certainly 100% goes to the 10-year-old lady, Liana Mormont. For her oh, handwritten letter again, to King again. Stannis Baratheon, to King Stannis Baratheon, saying, Dear "Uncle Stannis, yes, <laughs> Bear Island knows no king but the King in the North, whose name is Stark." Doesn't she draw a wolf? Yes, yes, she, <laughs> she does. doodled on her letter to the king. It's like writing to Santa Claus and drawing the cookies and milk. The seed <laughs> is strong on Bear Island. I just want to say, with no implications. Those are great yeah. people. 
Wonderful yeah. people. As yeah. long as we're giving owns, uh, I would stay in that that same general world. geographic region. Oh, damn no, it. and give it to one Maester <laughs> Targaryen. Yes. At first, yes. I was like, "Is he counting the votes? Is this blind guy really counting the votes for casting the deciding vote uh. in naming one Jon Snow <sighs> Lord Commander of the Nights?" Yes. I really want to talk about it. I know we can't. I do. I, I oh want to talk about God. it too. What is your own? Come my, on, Eric. My own is Stop holding to, out from London. Look, my own is going to a 10-year-old girl. And yes. It's actually, it's not Leanna Mormont. What? It, yeah, sorry. It's going to Shireen Baratheon because God. she just taught another person who – I didn't even like Gillian until she learned to read. She bettered herself, okay? And that is what oh, this what? is all about, the slow game. People know how to read. Trump people who don't know how to read all the time, just wow. as evidenced by the people that we know who know how to read. And Shireen, maybe Meister Cresson, little little own, mini own, because he clearly taught this little girl from an early age, from the age of three, that sharing is caring. She's mm. spreading the love, she's spreading the joy of reading, and it's it's super funny that whole scene with her and and how Sam kind of scoffs at it, or it doesn't scoff, but just they go they go back and we're forth. not supposed to talk about it, Eric. I know. But that's the she's own. cock blocking him. That's she, what that's, he's no, pissed off yeah, about. Yeah, well, that's that's the own. So ten year old girl, definitely Shireen Baratheon. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of other owns, obviously, and we look forward to reading all of yours, the ones you come up with. Forward to talking about the wall on the next episode. But that's my own. I'm sticking to it. I know that this isn't necessarily okay to do, but I also really wanted to give my own to Stannis for being <laughs> for being the man that he is and doing the things that he did. Just, I'm sure he'll have plenty you're allowed. of times. Plenty of times. You too. are allowed. I know that they're streaming in. I look forward to reading those. Plenty of owns have been sent to us on this second episode of season five on Twitter, Facebook, email. Uh, we will compile them all and make them into one big pot of owns that we can again roast over the campfire with marshmallows. And discuss. I don't want to see one own to Arya for beheading that bird. I'm still going to be in mourning when we do the next episode. You're a strange uh-huh. man, Eric Skull. You really, really are. <laughs> uh, don't want to see one. They showed the whole thing, at least with uh, Cersei and the poor Tyrion lookalike's head. Uh, that was done off screen. But that be- that bird man, just one second his head was there, and the next second there was blood. Mm-hmm. Well, in case you've forgotten how to get in touch with us and send us your owns on Twitter, it's just at uh, Game of Owns. Facebook, yes. you can scroll upon our mini posts on our Facebook wall at facebook.com slash Game of Owns or email us, contact at Game of com. We look forward to discussing and sharing all of your owns on the next episode as we dive deeper into uh, what happened at Castle Black. And thank you to the handful of new Patreon subscribers who have hopped aboard and are eagerly awaiting Chapter 6, which should release this week. So if you're interested in seeing all of the drama that will fall in that sixth chapter of the show we kind of release monthly, that's a bit insidery. And when I say a bit completely insidery, go to patreon.com slash goo. Thank you. And over on iTunes, we of course appreciate all the listeners that have gone over there and uh, rated and reviewed the show as we head into this uh, season. It is always great to have you uh, tell others that, uh, not the others, but just others in general, uh, that that we exist. So uh, thank you so much for doing that. And of course, in the month of April, nothing less than five stars is acceptable. This show wouldn't be what it is without you, without all of you writing in, without all of you 
making friends with one another without all of you showing up at conventions and saying hello and, and, and really crafting the community around this show and around the books and around the HBO series. We know that this is a very, very popular show and that there are many options for what you're listening to, just considering the sheer popularity of it. And uh, we thank you for joining the community or even a community in general. We thank you, of course, uh, for listening to this episode. You much like Drogon, we will return later on in the week with fire and blood.